Good afternoon, everyone. How can you tell that you're at a good college? It's beautiful weather, it's homecoming, there's a football game going on, and we have a good crowd in the chapel to talk about science. My name is David Anderson, and I have the honor to be the president of my alma mater. I also have the honor of introducing three St. Olaf students who are going to introduce today's speaker. The first is Ian Gesheru. Originally from Kenya, Ian came to the United States 14 years ago with his family and settled in the Twin Cities in pursuit of educational opportunities. And he found them at St. Olaf College in our TRIO programs. Ian has now participated in Upward Bound, Student Support Services, and the McNair program. He's studying math and economics, and when he's not in the lab or the classroom, you can find him on the mat. He's on the wrestling team. Ian is also a scholar in the Encouraging Careers in Math and Science program. Seton Lobsung came to the United States over a decade ago from a Tibetan refugee settlement camp in southern India. She's a biology major, and she credits her success in the field to the support and services she received as a biologist in the Biologist for the Future program, and as a student in our TRIO family, where she participated in Upward Bound and Student Support Services. Now she has an eye on both Western and Eastern medicine, and Seton is hoping to discover new ways to treat tuberculosis patients in southern India. And finally, Jose Ramirez, who has always been fascinated by the inner workings of the human body. Who isn't? He's a future biologist and cardiologist. He knew that he wanted to be a doctor, but he didn't quite know how to make that dream a reality until from his home in St. Paul, he found St. Olaf College the TRIO Upward Bound program, and he began working toward his collegiate career with the goal of being a physician in mind. He's been in our Summer Bridge program, and he's in the Biologist for the Future program, and he's in the McNair program, and he's well on his way to achieving his goals. He participated in a summer research project in biology with Professor Kevin Crisp, and he knows that research is sure to be an important part of his future career. So it's my pleasure to introduce to you and to call to the podium Ian, Seton, and Jose. Well, thank you, President Anderson. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Ian Gashero, and um, I'm part of the class of 2010. And um, I'm having the proud honor to introduce Dr. Obrowski. Born in 1950 in Birmingham, Alabama, Dr. Obrowski was a child leader in the Civil Rights Movement, and he was prominently featured in the 1997 Spike Lee documentary, Four Little Girls, on the racially motivated bombing in the 1963 of the Birmingham uh, 16th Street Ch uh, Baptist Church. He graduated at age 19 from Hampton Institute with the highest honors in mathematics, and at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, he received his master's in mathematics and at the age of 24, he received his PhD in um, Higher Education Administration and Statistics. Thank you, Ian. 
Um, my name is Seton Lofsong, and I'm also a class of 2010, and I'm happy to be one of the um, announcers or introducing Dr. Freeman Hrabowski. Dr. Freeman Hrabowski has served as president of UMBC since 1992. His research and publication focus on science and math education with special emphasis on participation and performance of underrepresented populations. A nationally recognized advocate for improvements in science and math education, Dr. Hrabowski serves as consultant to the National Science Foundation, the National Institutes of Health, and the National Academics, and universities and school systems nationally. He also sits on several corporate and civic boards. He has authored numerous articles and co-authored uh, two books, Beating the Odds and Overcoming the Odds. The, that focuses on parent, parenting and high-achieving African-Americans in science. Thank you, Satin. Um, my name is Jose Ramirez. I'm class of 2009. In addition to being named a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, Dr. Herbowski has, been, has received the prestigious McGraw Prize in Education, the U.S. Presidential Award for Excellence in Science, Mathematics, and Engineering Mentoring, and the Columbia University Teachers College Medal for Distinguished Service. He also holds a number of honorary degrees from institutions that include Harvard College, Princeton University, Duke University, and many others. Earlier this afternoon, we got to spend some one-on-one -on -one time with Dr. Bosky. And two facts you may not have known were that he has a deep passion and connection with his students, and that he also gets goosebumps when he does math problems. Today, Dr. Friedman Hrabowski's lecture, entitled Liberal Education and Science for the 21st Century, will discuss the role of math and science in the liberal arts education and all of its implications. So without further ado, please help us in welcoming Dr. Friedman Hrabowski. I am very proud of those students. Uh, we had a great conversation. Jose and Ian and Seth and I talked uh, about many things. And we were talking about what it means to speak in front of a group. And understandably, people are a little nervous. And we talked about strategies that I won't tell you about that focus on how to not be so nervous. My challenge today, and I want to thank Dr. Anderson and all of you for inviting me uh, to be here. Um, the challenge that I face is to talk in a way that may say something that might be provocative to my colleagues, faculty, and administrators, to students at the college, but also to keep in mind that I have the privilege of having large numbers of young people, high school students, who are here. So I want you to think about this balancing act today. Uh, if I were with one group or the other, the approach might be a bit different. One of the things, college students, I want you to think about is, it's very important, and, and Jeannie will appreciate my say, I know she's somewhere, we work together with the Kaleidoscope Project, uh, that when one gets up to speak, it's important to know the audience. One of the purposes of a liberal education is to teach us how to adapt to different situations. And so what I'm going to be working to do today is just that, to adapt and to make sure that they don't go to sleep on me. Are you okay? You with me so far? All right. Very good. By the way, how many of you consider yourselves to be smart? Students? Ah, one of my goals today is to get you to think about wanting to be smart. And I should say, one of our goals in universities and colleges, it seems to me, is to help this country think about how we encourage children to dare to know, 
to be fascinated by ideas uh, and to focus on problem solving of all types. I am impressed, David, that you could have your homecoming football game on and have people here today. I come from a campus that's known as a fairly nerdy place. Uh, we are either first or second in chess every year. Give me a big hand for that. We're very proud of that. Typically, my own grown son says, Dad, you're not just a nerd, you are a mega nerd, all right? To which I respond, but, but mega nerds can pay their bills all the time. There's nothing wrong with being smart. One of the reasons you want to be smart, you can always pay your bills when you get older, young people. Remember that. I was impressed today by several things. First of all, I had read the material. Bruce had sent me the material, and I appreciate that. And, and what was so clear was the, the themes that one... Um, senses from the literature of, about St. Olive, the, the theme of interdisciplinarity, of, uh, of investigating, of being interactive, of being innovative, uh, of talking about integrity. I mean, it goes on from there. And, and in that wonderful science facility, it was so clear, even in your design, that you listened to the community, to students and faculty, in thinking about what science should mean in a liberal arts setting, uh, connections to the natural world, opportunities for faculty and students to work together, uh, ways in which you can open things up and thinking creatively. And, I, and I, I'd like to talk today about just that, liberal education and science for the 21st century. And students, I'm going to get to you. I promise you I will. Let me start by saying that um, often I am speaking to leaders, academic leaders. I, I conduct a seminar at Harvard for new college presidents. Uh, and the first question, David, that people, presidents always ask is, at what point can I stop being nervous about being president? And I often say, the point when you stop being a little anxious is when you're going to be doomed to fail. That to be prepared for life, whether it's as a president or as a professional, means one is always constantly thinking about what's the next step, what's about college, about med school, about grad school, faculty members as they think about their research and their teaching. But I quote Jim Friedman, the former president, the late Jim Friedman, a good friend of Dartmouth College and the former head of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, who talks about the importance of a liberal education. And he says this, at the heart of liberal education lies a conception of intellectual wholeness, an ideal of coherence within that expanding array of specialties and subspecialties, of disciplines and subdisciplines that composes the universe of knowledge. It's, I would argue, that conception of intellectual wholeness that we find in your new facility, Regents Hall. And then I want to use some of the thinking of Mortimer Adler uh, the philosopher, as he talks about the liberal arts. Because I think we, we often, in general society, tend to think about the liberal arts, and we think about the humanities, clearly a major part of, of the liberal arts. But he says this, and I know you know this, but it's important to emphasize that the liberal arts are traditionally, while they may traditionally be intended to develop the faculties of the human mind, we know that. Few people understand, though, that that those disciplines are not simply tied or tied only to the humanities. Clearly, philosophy, history, literature, music, and art are very important, but similarly, areas such as mathematics and physics and the other scientific disciplines would be considered equally liberal, liberal because they equally are able to develop the powers of the mind. 
And so the liberal arts tradition, as you know, goes back to medieval curriculum, and you had the trivium, and you had the quad quadivium. And on the one hand, you're talking about the art of reading and writing and listening and speaking and, and uh, solid thinking. But on the other, you really are talking about, they were talking about arithmetic and geometry and astronomy and, and music. And I was delighted to learn that a graduate of St. Olaf who deals with science all the time was a music major, Jeannie, you know. But when they talked about music, they were not talking about audible music. They were talking about music conceived as a mathematical science. And one sees that foundation when thinking about the art of observation, of calculation and measurement in understanding the quantitative aspects of things. What am I saying? I am suggesting to you that uh, your opening this science building and the theme of science and other disciplines, all of your emphasis uh, fits well with your mission as a liberal arts institution and gives your students and young people who come here a chance to understand that whether studying philosophy or science, one is studying the liberal arts. This is a liberal education. Perhaps one of the most famous liberally educated scientists today that many people talk about, somebody people talk about a lot, is Tom Check, Dr. Tom Check, the scientist in the room. You know, Tom, Tom is the head of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, the largest medical foundation in our country. $12 billion in bad times. This week, I don't know, but before this week, anyway, $12 billion. Uh, Nobel laureate in chemistry. Uh, um, uh, he, Tom wrote an article entitled Science at Liberal Arts Colleges. Tom is a graduate of Grinnell and is a Nobel laureate. Um, and he talks about, he asks the question about, okay, what is the, what are we talking about when we think about the graduates of liberal arts institutions, of colleges? Uh, it is significant that your institution is in the top ten in producing um, those people who go on bachelor's recipients who get PhDs among national, national liberal arts institutions. Your institution is to be commended that you're number one. I think Tina and, and Kate were from, were from math today when I was faculty members, that you're number one in mathematics and statistics in graduates who go on. And so you've, you have a solid reputation as a college as an institution that produces students who go on to get PhDs. Uh, he gives reasons that you would all agree with. He says, the leadership of US science benefits from a disproportionate representation of liberal arts college graduates. Considering those elected to membership in the National Academy of Sciences in a recent two-year period who were educated in the United States, 19% obtained their bachelor's degree from a liberal arts college. Liberal arts colleges not only obtain PhDs, but they go on to excel in their fields at a rate that's at least twice greater, two times greater than bachelor's degree recipients in general. And what is it about this institution, about this institution, St. Olive, about liberal arts colleges that he and others would suggest would be the reasons, things that faculty here already know. Uh, he says, at a liberal arts college, the undergraduates are the center of attention, the reason for the existence of the institution. This can engender confidence and a feeling of self-worth. Many of the features of a liberal arts education combine to create a very comfortable and supportive environment for learning. Distinguishing characteristics of liberal arts colleges like St. Olaf then would be small classes, a faculty that's available to students and focused largely on undergrad education, and the incorporation of courses in the humanities and arts that promote intellectual cross-training. Such academic cross-training develops a student's ability to collect and organize facts and opinions, to analyze them and weigh their value, 
and to articulate an, an argument, the study of great books, of history, of languages, of music, and many other non-science fields is likely to hone a scientist's ability to perceive and interpret the natural world. More specifically, in history, in literature, and in the arts, one is presented with diverse, often mutually contradictory data, different points of view due to incomplete knowledge of the different backgrounds of those doing the viewing. And therefore, one learns to distill the critical elements from the irrelevant, to synthesize seemingly discordant observation and develop a strong argument. His point is that clearly a liberal arts education prepares scientists, young people to go on into scientists and to do really well. Now with that said, with the fact, given the fact that you've done a great job, what, what's the challenge that we face in the 21st century as we think about how to prepare large numbers of Americans in science? I would suggest to you, and many would agree, that we really don't know what this century will hold. The past couple of weeks have suggested to all of us that there is much about the future that we simply don't know. But I would also suggest to you, as somebody I think fairly well grounded in the humanities, whose mother was an English teacher, who had me reading at a young age, that the, that the preparation we get through a liberal arts education prepares us to think critically and to be prepared to adapt to whatever will occur. Now, this is where I want to bring in the students for a minute. Let me show you how different the world is today, young people, from um, when I was in college or when I was in the 10th grade. How many people in the room, I want everybody to look around the room as I ask this question, how many people in the room remember when your house got its first television? Students, look around the room. What you see is that among young people, they would say, what do you mean? Didn't houses always have televisions? No. All right. Watch this. How many people in the room remember when the house got its first color television? You see? Now look at the young people. They say, wasn't TV always in color? No. All right. Black and white didn't talk about the races, right? You, remember, we only began talking about black and white TVs when color TVs came into existence. Before that, it was just TV, all right? How many remember the first VCR? Students would say, I mean, VCR. What about first DVD, all right? Students are still saying, didn't they always have DVDs? No. What about first phones, cell phones? All right. Some of the kids are saying, but weren't there always these? Students, when I was in college, a guy came to talk about the future. And he said, one day, everybody will walk around with a phone in his or her pocket. And I laughed and got up and said, I can prove that that will never happen. And he said, how? I was the smartest kid. I just knew I was so smart. I said, because we'll never have cords long enough to go around. And I thought, I'd, and the whole room applauded me. They knew I was telling the truth, right? What is my point? Quite frankly, we don't even know what we don't know. And the, the challenge that we face is that the world is changing so dramatically that it will be a liberal education that will make a big difference. And it is true that science and technology will play a major role to the college students and high school students, but that we need to understand how to think critically 
how to look at different points of view, how to remain calm in solving problems as we work to tackle the sticky issues of the day. Um, I noticed that you had the, Dr. Anderson, you have uh, the NASA truck. Some of you saw the NASA truck. Did you see that NASA truck? We are big partners of NASA also. My campus, for the scientists in the room, my campus uh, has about 12,000 students. Uh, we have PhDs in the science and engineering areas and, and some of the humanities, but clearly half of my students are in science. But we are second in funding from NASA in the country. And so we do a lot in Earth Systems Technology, Joint Center in Astrophysics, a uh, lot of work in those areas. We've not had a NASA truck on my campus, though. So believe me, I'm going back to tell NASA I want a truck on my campus. So I'm very impressed. I have no problem in, in copying what other people do, all right? Presidents do that all the time. But I bring it up because I had the head of NASA speaking for my commencement a couple years ago, and he said something that, that was absolutely fascinating. He said, yours, talking about all of the young people under 25, okay, in the room. He said, your generation is the first group of, of human beings who may have the opportunity to pursue your careers by leaving this world. By leaving this world. Now, for 20th century thinkers, what, are, what do you think about when you leave this world? You die, right? <laughs> but for your generation, the point he's making is very possible you will be able to live on another planet. Unheard of that there's life on other planets. We're doing more and more in biology at NASA right now just because of the possibilities. What is the point I'm making? The world is dramatically different from what you might consider. And it seems to me, colleagues, faculty members, and students. The most important point I could make today when thinking about what we need to be doing is to teach young people to ask good questions. Of all the things I could say, I want the students to be curious. I want them to be looking at the world and asking good questions. I. I. Robbie, a Nobel, another Nobel laureate who grew up in um, New York, and, and earned the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1944, said that when he was growing up in, um, in New York, that all of his friends' parents would ask them at the end of the day, what did you learn in school today? He said, but not my Jewish mother. My Jewish mother would say, Izzy, did you ask a good question today? And the practice of encouraging his curiosity, he said, of encouraging him to ask questions led him to be the scientist he became. And so I would suggest to you, young people, college students and young people, um, that you want to be curious. I gave the students a math problem today, right? Some of you remember that problem? And the problem said 29 children are in a class, 20 have dogs, 15 have cats. How many have both a dog and a cat? And the best thing that happened, besides people trying to shout out the answers, I would say, don't give me an answer, I want to see how you're thinking, was that people started asking me questions about the problem. Now, as it turns out, one of the administrators, Bruce, is saying that after this is over, anybody who gets it will get a prize, and they all got really excited, even more so. And make no mistake about it that as we think about how to prepare more scientists, the more we can show them connections to the real world and show them how math and science relate, and the more they can see what they can do with that work, the more interest we can develop. I was fascinated in hearing Jose say that he had always thought of becoming a physician, and we need a lot of physicians and Hispanic physicians, physicians in general, 
Uh, but what was really nice was when he, I was telling him that many of my students go on to get the MD, PhD, and a, a number of them do, and, and he was saying he was thinking about it because he had a great research experience with one of the faculty here at St. Olive studying earthworms, as I recall, and um, that the work was so exciting that he's seriously considering now adding the PhD on. That's what we call success. We want to see as much of that as possible. The, the, the book that I want to recommend to colleagues, uh, David, to everybody here, as you think about how you view the future, is entitled A Whole New Mind by Daniel Pink, the color pink. Uh, and the subtitle is Moving from the Information Age to the Conceptual Age. And what he says is this. The era of left brain dominance and the information age that it engendered is giving way to a new world in which artistic and holistic right brain abilities mark the fault line between who gets ahead and who falls behind. Our brains, as we know, are divided into two hemispheres. The left is sequential, logical, and analytical. The right is nonlinear, intuitive, and holistic. Today, the defining skills of the previous era, the left brain capabilities that powered the information age, are necessary but no longer sufficient. And the capabilities we once disdained are thought frivolous. The right brain qualities of inventiveness and empathy and joyfulness and meaning increasingly will determine who flourishes and who flounders. For individuals, for families and organizations, professional success and personal fulfillment now require a whole new mind. And I think what you're doing in your work to build a interdisciplinary programs, as I work with faculty today who were from psychology and education and math and physics and biology and chemistry, uh, it was amazing to me to see how they were looking at problems and challenges involving preparation of students and academic performance uh, and the work that you're going to be doing in neurobiology, the neuroscience work that you're doing, suggest your appreciation of those areas. I will tell you, faculty, um, uh, we've been having some fun looking at bioinformatics and computational biology. The Human Genome Project is in the Baltimore, Washington, Florida. So we do a lot with a number of companies in that area. Uh, we're doing more. Um, um, I have been fascinated with the work of Kaleidoscope over the years and looking at, and, and I think what's done in science instruction at liberal arts colleges is what, what research universities need to do much more of anyway. And so we have worked to model ourselves after much of the good work of undergrad institutions as we think about how to focus attention on both instruction in math and science and engineering areas for undergraduates, not just for the grad students, how to pull the students into the research as much as possible, and how to think about performance of all students. The big challenge that we face in our country, besides that of uncertainty, is that the world is changing dramatically. The other book I want to recommend is probably a number one bestseller right now at the New York Times, is uh, the new Tom Friedman book. I had the privilege of having dinner with him last week with some people. Uh, it's called Hot, Flat, and Crowded. Hot, Flat, and Crowded. And what he says, in essence, very simply, we know the global warming problem. He documents much of that and what it means and just how bad things are. He, the flatness comes from the fact that we have millions and billions of, more of additional people who have become middle class because of the internet, quite frankly, particularly China and India. And finally, the, the notion that um, the resources of the world 
will not be enough to deal with the challenges of the growing population, how fast the population is growing. He gives you the, the link to a site which will allow you to put in your birth year to determine the number of people in the world the, year, the day you were born and then to look at where we are today. It's a fascinating look of just how many more people are constantly being born and how much the world is changing because of the population in general growing, because of the middle class living style. The Chinese and the Indians are now much more middle class, which means what? They're consuming more and more oil, and energy is the big issue. And when you think about science, liberal education, and 21st century, to me, as he says, the, the transfer of wealth alone to the countries that are controlling the oil would suggest that we have no choice but to put the money into science at all levels in order to find alternatives to what we're doing right now. It's a fascinating read that gives a sense of how science will make a difference. And then one other area I want to mention that deals with the 21st century will be demographics. The big problem we face, and, and one of the things I want to commend this college on, is that we have large numbers of people in our country who are not from advantaged situations, that there is a growing disparity between the haves and have-nots. I chair the Marguerite Casey Foundation Board in Seattle, and we look at issues of poverty and wealth. Amazingly, the net worth of the top 1% this is all before two weeks ago, by the way, all right? Everything I say now has to be modified. I don't know what it's going to look like now, but the net worth before this recent challenge, uh, the net worth of the top 1% of wealthy Americans exceeds the net worth of the bottom 95% of Americans. Let me say it again because it's hard even to imagine what that means. The net worth of the top 1% is greater than the net worth of the bottom 95%. And the, the, the question is, what is happening to the American middle class? And what we see is that that bottom 40%, the, the net worth of the, of the, and students, it's really important for all of you to appreciate this challenge because you're going to live in a world where wealth and poverty and haves and have-nots and the gap will be a defining characteristic of who we are because we'll either be narrowing that gap and reducing the number of children left behind or the problem will get exponentially worse. The net worth of the top 10% of Americans has been recently, uh, has moved from three quarters of a million to about a million and a half dollars. So there are more millionaires in America than ever before. But the bottom 25% of Americans have net worth that's $1,100. In other words, 25, and if you take about another 15%, the bottom 40% of Americans are struggling to figure out how they will have food and housing. And in the book, Hot, Flat, and Crowded, he talks about energy poverty uh, and the fact that you have billions of, of people in the world who don't even have electricity right now in terms of the gap between those who have and those who don't. In our own country, though, a challenge that we face as we think about international issues just in our own country, the fact is that the achievement gap is extraordinarily wide. Here's the gap. Um, the average child of color, with the exception of a few Asian groups, the average child of color, black and Hispanic kids, a lot of immigrant children, the average child graduating at the 12th grade will have math and reading skills at the level of the average middle class white child. And the average poor white child also is down at that level. 
And we're talking about millions of children of all races who are in those economic categories. And one of the points of a liberal education is for leaders, all of you will be leaders, graduates of St. Olaf, of course, you're from a privileged background, and, I mean, and, a, and a wonderful place deeply rooted in faith. What that says to me is that you can appreciate the notion of those to whom much is given, much is required. And a part of what is required is to understand the challenges that we face in this century and to look at ways in which liberally educated people will tackle these problems. And a defining characteristic of healthy colleges will be a willingness to talk about the sticky issues of the day, to talk about the issues. We as Americans have not become comfortable necessarily talking about the sticky issues of poverty, of race and discrimination and those kinds of issues. And to be able to talk about those issues in a way that we're not shouting at each other or hollering or, or being angry, but trying to think through from different perspectives how to solve those problems. Now, science will be helpful to us as we think about issues like energy, but also obviously with healthcare. Because the same problem that I talked about in academic achievement is true when thinking about health disparities. I could go population by population, but you would see that people of color live fewer years than middle class whites. That if a woman is of color and is over 55 from certain racial groups, she's got about a 25-30% chance of having diabetes by the time she's 55. And in the list, whether it's about breast cancer, all the way, and in some cases it's socioeconomic issues, in other cases there are challenges based on genetics and racial backgrounds. And the question is, how do we identify more young people from all kinds of backgrounds who can get involved to become both college educated and become involved in science and engineering. Um, if I were to ask this group this question, what percent do you think of Americans today over the age of 25 hold a bachelor's degree? Let me ask the college students. Let me see, there's some college students around. What percent do you think of Americans over 25 have a college degree. Does anyone know, other than experts in the room? <laughs> it's 25%. So I want you to hear me saying this. Now, understand something. Let me put it in perspective for you, okay? Uh, in the late 50s and 60s, uh, only 11% of whites and 2% of blacks had a college degree. But you did need a college degree to get a good job. That was the difference. Today, Young people, you need more and more education to get a good job. That's the point. And today, what we find is about 33% of whites, only 33% of 32% of whites over the age of 25 have a college degree. Only about 17% of blacks, only 11% of Hispanics have a college degree. What's the fastest growing population in our country? Hispanic. One in every four Americans will be Hispanic. Now, the challenge we face is to think through people from all kinds of backgrounds. In terms of the Asian population, there are certain groups of Asian students where you don't have large numbers going to college, and then there are others where you do have large numbers. My, on my campus, a quarter of my students are from a Chinese background, Indian background, um, and they are well-educated. And the fact is, 55% of Asian Americans hold a college degree. But it's a by modal situation. You've got certain groups where very few people or children are getting an education, and then you've got large numbers of students who are grad students in this country and remain. And that makes the difference, you see. So you can't just say they're, they're in good shape. Every group needs much more support. I have found that I can get much more done 
talking about stories that can make a point sometimes than talking about numbers. And this is a story for the young people. Young people, I, you heard the, the students say, I grew up in Birmingham and I had the privilege of going to jail with Dr. King. It was quite a privilege. He, he had a children's march and I had a chance to lead some children to jail and to grow up in a time when I couldn't go to the better schools because I was black. Now I tell you that because the question becomes, well, how was I lucky enough then to one day get a PhD and go to college and get a PhD and become a college president? And the main reason was that, quite frankly, I had someone in my home who taught me the importance of reading more than anything else, reading. And I'm talking as a math teacher now of reading. And here's the story I want to tell you. I've told it many times. When I was a child, I was embarrassed about this story, but now I tell it with great pride. My mother said that when she was growing up, well, my parents always talked about their childhood experiences growing up in little country towns in Alabama. I grew up in the big city, Birmingham, but they grew up in below Selma, Alabama, and below Montgomery, Alabama. Wetumpka was the name of the city. And my dad said, boy, you're so lucky. You've got somebody to drive you or take you on a bus to school every day. When I was growing up, he would say, I had to walk five miles to school every day. You know those kind of stories? To which I would respond, Dad, that's why your feet so big. You had all that walking to do. To which he would respond, boy, don't you get smart with me. But my mother told a story that embarrassed me as a child. And yet now it is something I think about every day. She said beginning at age 12, every day she had to work as a maid in a home. And she said working at that maid, as that maid gave her a chance to see how advantaged wealthy people lived. And what she saw was that the house had a library and people read books and they talked about ideas. And she was fascinated. And the woman of the house said, Maggie, when you finish your work, you can go into the library and read. And mother would do that and she'd say, take the book home and bring it back. And here is the point that I want you to think about, young people. She said that all of a sudden her girlfriends became very angry with her because they would say, Maggie, come on outside and play. And mother would say, no, I really want to stay in and read this book. And they would say, why would you want to keep your head in a book? And she said this. She said, the more she read, the better a reader she became. And the better a reader she became, the more she liked to read. And the more she liked to read, the more she could understand what was happening around her, and the more she could forget that she was poor. And so she just kept reading, and she just read. And the more she read, the more she liked to write. And the more she liked to write, the more she could express herself. And then she could speak better. And then when she would talk to people, they would say, oh, she's different. And they would say, what's the difference? We, said, we don't know. Well, the difference was she had learned standard English well. She had learned to use language as a tool to help her get ahead in life. And she went on to college and she became an English teacher. And she always said, if I hadn't learned to love to read, I never would have become a teacher. I never would have been able to do what I've done. And I know, young people, if it had not been for her learning to love to read, I wouldn't be here today. And so I'm always talking to people about reading. Now, to, the co to my colleagues, mother was a middle school English teacher, and so she would quote Zora Neale Hurston, ships at a distance 
have every man's wish on board. For some, they come in with the tide. For others, they sail forever on the horizon, never out of sight, never landing, until the watcher turns his head away in resignation, his dreams mocked to death by time. That is the life of men, she would say, and women. And her point was, like Zora Neale Hurston, that there are people whose dreams become reality. When you go to college, you've got dreams becoming fulfilled. All right. When you're in high school in a special program, you're on your way to having those dreams fulfilled because they're teaching you in your program to think about going to college. They're bringing you to a college so you can be inspired to think, I want to do this one day. And believe me, young people, whether you are 14 or 15 or 16, what you do today, the, your ability to listen to people, to think about what they say, to do your homework, and to read, will determine who you will be in five years. Now, the other part of the story is, in the 60s, something came out called the new math. Anybody remember the new math? Somebody old enough remember the new math? Well, everybody in my mother's school was frightened to go and take the new math, and she was the rebel. She said, I'll go and take it. So she went back to take the new math, set theory and all kinds of things. And what became clear to her was that her background in language as an English teacher could help her in teaching children to solve word problems. She began to see connections between language and mathematics. And she used me as her guinea pig. So she would have word problems all on the walls, all around. And just like uh, the administrator of the day when Bruce was telling you today, when he said something about he'd give you a prize if you could solve the problem, she'd have incentives for me. If I could solve certain word problems, I'd get certain incentives. Now, she knew I loved to eat. See, I was a fat little kid. And, I, and so she'd have, like, Big Mac up there or a small hamburger or a blueberry pie. I mean, it was great. So I was getting fatter and smarter all the time. I really was. <laughs> I really was. But the point was she had me excited about learning and, about, and she would teach me how to understand the word problem because the problem in America for so many young people is they'll say, don't give me a story problem, a word problem. Give me the equation. 5x plus 5 equals 15. Don't give me the story problem not realizing that all of math and science and engineering will, will be, problems will be expressed in language. As you get it, whether you want to be a doctor, an engineer, whatever you want to do, language will be very important, very important, liberal arts education. And so what, what my mother's experience did for me, though, was to teach me that, and then, as I said earlier, working with an upward bound program and watching children read and seeing connections. And then listening today, I was amazed as uh, I think it was Ann Walter was telling me about a course she taught in reading and science here, that, that so, for so many people, developing reading and writing skills in the context of science can be so helpful, very helpful as we think about ways of encouraging students to do well in the work. And so my, my final point about this issue of where you are as an institution and the experiences we've had on my campus would be this. 20 years ago, it had not occurred to me that we could produce large numbers of students of color who could do well in science. We, had, we could not find one child educated in this country of color who had earned an A in any upper level science course. 
and then we went through the, the experience of developing the Meyerhoff program, of having faculty do the kind of things you're doing to look at what are the problems, what are the skills students need, how do we attract students who can make it here, how do we give them certain experiences, how do we have the best faculty working with them to get them into labs, and then we developed strategies that were very provocative. We said if a student earned a C in calculus or in physics or in chemistry, we should encourage the student to retake the course. Because if you think about it, faculty, it's very difficult for somebody to go from C's in one level of science to A's and B's in the next level because one thing builds on the other. And one of the faculty asked me today, well, how do you motivate students to do that? Well, it's through building community and talking about what it means to be the best. What has made the difference for our campus, we've become the leading predominantly white university in the country in producing African Americans who go on to get science PhDs. Give me a big hand for that. We're very proud of that. We're very proud of that. We really are. And if you ask me how we've done it, and we've got a lot of data on it and things we can show you, it's building community among students. It's setting high expectations. It's getting them to think broadly about their future and the fact that they want to be science leaders. And this is for students of, of all types, regardless of race, first-generation college. It's getting them to understand, especially when they're the only one looking like themselves, quite frankly. So if you've never seen a Tibetan faculty member or a Hispanic faculty member or a black faculty member, just say, I could be that first one, you see. And this is the point to you all that I want to make, and I will close. It is that you already are known as a wonderful liberal arts institution producing a, a significant proportion of students who go on and get PhDs. And you're now looking at and bringing in grants to focus on this notion of underrepresentation, a major issue for our country and its competitiveness. And you now have this incredible facility just founded, just established on all the right themes of the integration and the, the uh, interdisciplinarity and the interaction with faculty. The challenge is to build community among faculty and students to look at the specific issues involving particular groups, their performance today, their backgrounds, their, to listen to their voices, and to look at best practices of ways of encouraging better performance. And even to say to some students of all races, if you don't do well the first time, let's look at ways we can ensure that we build the background so that you have that foundation. Because if a student can earn really strong marks and have a solid foundation in the first two years of science, and then if that student has a substantive research experience as positive as the kind Jose had with earthworms, that student will begin to ask good questions and to think about the possibilities. You know, at the end of my mother's life, she had been just such a smart, inspiring woman who had encouraged so many children to go on and, and do well. We had brought her from, from Birmingham to my home to Baltimore. And one day, and, and it was clear she had developed Alzheimer's. These are the human experience stories. And she would work so hard to remember. She would say a line of a poem and have me say a line after that. We, because we, all of our lives we had done poetry together. We had talked and read and memorized poems from Emily Dickinson to, to Langston Hughes. And she would say a line and I would say she would just be trying to remember. And then she would, she would force me to give her math word problems. She would say, give me another problem, give me another. And she'd work on it, just trying to hone her skills and to keep it. And finally, though, she didn't know who I was, young people. I'm an only child, and it was clear. She knew I was familiar, 
but she had, but she looked at me and she said, I know the end is near. And you never want to hear your mother say that. It's just, it's like, this can't happen. And I looked at her and I said, what's important to you now? And she said with the sweetest smile, relationships. She said, and I was trying not to cry, and she said, my relationship with God. She said, hold on to your faith. You'll be okay. Hold on to your faith. Something she had said all of my life, even though she didn't know my name. She remembered she was a woman of faith. Hold on to your faith. And then she said, my relationship with my husband, he's a wonderful man. She had forgotten my daddy had died 20 years before. Now, I'm an only child, and all of a sudden, she shocked me. She looked right at me, and she said, you know, I have a son. And all of a sudden, my grief turned to anger. I got really upset. Because I thought she was about to tell me she'd had a kid when she was a teenager and she never told me about it, all right? I got rid I'm thinking TMI, you know what TMI means? Too much information. Don't tell me I have a brother now. I'm too old to have a, don't you, don't you drop this on me and die and leave this for me to clean up. No, no. If I haven't had a brother all these years, I don't want a brother, all right? And I'm looking at her and she said, he's a college president. She was talking about me, thank God. <laughs> but then she gave me the greatest gift of all. She said to me, you know, I now understand, though, that teachers touch eternity through their students. Whatever I had to give, my sense of right and wrong, my lust for learning, my telling them they were special, I gave it to them. I gave it to them all of my teaching career, and I will live through those children. I went back to Birmingham to speak a couple years ago. And all of these people who are about to retire from teaching came up to me and said, your mother didn't teach me to read, but she taught me to love to read. Your mother told me I was going to college when I never thought about the possibility. And because I went to college, my younger brothers and sisters went to college. If your mother hadn't gotten my mama to work with those forms, I wouldn't have gone and nobody else would have gone. And that's the message to you young people that you are doing this not just for yourselves, but for your entire families. Because as you do, so will your younger brothers and sisters. And so you are leaders already. And for my colleagues, the message to you is congratulations on being such a fine institution that's transforming lives and preparing people to transform the world. I challenge you to watch your thoughts, for they become your words. Watch your words, for they become your actions. Watch your actions, for they become your habits. Watch your habits, for they become your character. I tell my students, your character has everything to do with who you are when no one is watching, when your mother's not there. Then your real character comes through. So watch your thoughts, they become your words. Watch your words, they become your actions. Watch your actions, they become your habits. Watch your habits, they become your character. Watch your character, it becomes your destiny. Congratulations and happy homecoming to St. Olaf. Thank you all. Thank you.
was saying to faculty today that we in the East tend to compliment the Midwest. We do believe that you've got uh, some better values in some ways, harder working somehow. But one thing, I, I went to school in the I don't think of Midwesterners as super emotional. So it's a big deal when I see you give a standing ovation. <laughs> I am so impressed. I really am. Let me take one or two questions. Is that okay? Questions, please, from anyone. Somebody challenge me or ask me a question about anything. And, and while you stand, let me just say that when the faculty are asking about this question of how do you motivate a student to retake a course, it's a great question because people tend to think if you get a D, you retake it in your major, but if you get a C, you keep going. We actually use the data. We are strong believers in assessment. We use the data to show both faculty and students that when students earn Cs in those first courses, rarely, the probability of getting an A or B is so small. Now, when, and the good news is we can now show students examples. My first kid in the MAV program who earned a C in chemistry cried when we really encouraged him to retake it, but he did. He went on and he's now on the faculty of the Harvard Medical School. Not a bad story. First MD, black MD, PhD from University of Pennsylvania. Uh, PhD in genetics and cardiology. And it's a, it's a great story, but I use it all the time. Every time he comes back with him, I always say, and he got a C in chemistry, right, man? <laughs> Questions, yes, uh-huh. No, what we do, no, we, we, we allow them to um, have it as a part of their course load and just a regular course, so they're not paying any more money. And now sometimes students end up needing to be on campus in the summer doing research and taking a course to make up the time, but we try to make sure it's not a financial burden. We do that. We really do that. Uh, but, but it is amazing how many students can profit either from retaking the course or from having, I was just at... Um, several places, including Vassar, and they were looking at things they might do, such as supplemental work. You know, if you think about it, if a student doesn't do well in the first calculus course or chemistry course, um, the student, and, and the student gets a C, the student knows a lot already. So it, it doesn't even mean the student necessarily needs to retake the whole course, depending on the situation. In some cases, I've seen people come up with supplemental ways of, of having students focus on those concepts that have not been fully grasped. That's another approach that can be used, just depending on the performance of the student. But there's, there's a wide range in a C even though. You know, some people are very close, other people barely got that C, then they really probably do need to retake. Because I know you're like us, we take great pride. In the sciences, there isn't a lot of great inflation. So I mean, when you get a C, it does mean something. <laughs> great question he's asking about access and are we making progress? Is the financial aid the big issue? There's several things I can tell you. I, I gave a talk to the presidents at ACE several years ago on access and from the research I've done and from talking with a lot of institutions, I would say several things. Um, I was just, when I was at VASA, the president there, Cappy Hill, has done some special things to help mid middle income families of, of, particularly who need help. Uh, there is more financial aid available for the lowest income families. The big challenge is for working 
people a lot of times. It's very interesting in different ranges. And, and the question of access has everything to do with the type of institution. Of course it does. Now, from the point of view, uh, so it is possible for a student from a low-income background to have a higher, an, an experience in higher education. It may not be at an expensive institution. Uh, but what we are seeing is that more and more institutions, particularly private institutions, do want to make sure they have a diversity of students, including, including first-generation college and students of color. And so they will make some allowance, allowance to make sure some students of, from those backgrounds can be there. And that's good for some of them to have that experience, not only for those students, but for advantaged students to get the sense of all types of students. Uh, but the real challenge is twofold. We need more money for working class families. Federal financial aid focuses heavily on the lowest income. That's number one. And we need that. We do need that. But a lot of families just are in that middle area. And then number two, the big challenge for low income young people is academic preparation. Academic preparation. Now, there are students who are in the top group, academically prepared group, who are first generation college who are not going to college. And that's a travesty. And that has to do with the fact that we've got to give them more exposure. They are well prepared. They just haven't had the exposure. It takes a lot to fill out financial aid forms. You know, it's like RS. And so we need to be doing things for the academically prepared kids to give them all kinds of opportunities because they should have opportunities to go to all kinds of institutions. But the biggest problem I see is that children cannot read. The reason we talk about no child left behind so much is because millions of children cannot read of all races, literally need much more reading instruction. We learn to do by doing. I, if, if when I'm working with academic achievement issues and school boards around the country, I am talking about supplemental education. We need children involved in structured experiences in reading and math and science after school, not just during the day. Because advantaged families do those things with their children all the time. And other children don't get that. Long answer. Other questions, please, anybody? Yes, uh huh? You talked a little bit about the community. Yes. And maybe at the school they have the math and they have a little bit easier. Yes. 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 Sure. I, well, you know, I saw, I will tell you, I saw an interesting community of people this morning. Um, here in your faculty, just starting there with people from different disciplines who are particularly interested in the question of underrepresentation and improving, increasing the numbers, all right? Um, one can find people from all races, students, and all types of backgrounds, first-generation college, educated, whatever, who have interest in those areas. What is amazing about the Maha program now is that it is probably 60-some percent of color, heavily African-American and other groups, but at least 25% of my students in that program are white, some first-generation college, some the, the sons and daughters of Hopkins professors, all of whom have an interest in working with underrepresented groups. Some are saying, I want to be a Hopkins professor like my dad one day, and what I see him doing is working with poor people and all kinds of people, and I want to understand those challenges. Okay? So you can build community that has heavy representation of, of a diverse population, but has all kinds of people there interested in the same things. And from my perspective, what gives the group prestige, and prestige counts, 
it does count in the academy, is when you talk about producing people who will do something that's noble, that's really noble. See, there are very few academics who've had experience in science talking about and living under representation. I mean, we need more whites as well as others who are interested in those areas because they're going to be working with those young people. And there's something noble about that. So my, some of my white Meyerhoffs who have gone on to Harvard and Stanford have been incredible because they can talk comfortably about race, poverty, gender, and things. And professors call and say, how did they learn to do this? Because we do it. We do it. And that's, I mean, this is what I think St. Olaf can be doing because you've got such an emphasis on interaction, faculty-student interaction already. It's a matter of bringing up these sticky topics and having a chance to give people some level of comfort in saying what they really think without feeling they'll be attacked. There's the issue. Any final question from anyone? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, I believe if my statistics are right, the high school graduation rate is around 67% and maybe for the blacks and Hispanics, closer to 50%. How do we as a nation turn this around? It is a great question. He's saying that the graduation rate is only about two-thirds of Americans and is much lower for blacks and Hispanics and for Native Americans and some Asian groups, but not many. The fact is that I am convinced that we need colleges looking at issues of K-12, through much more so, and getting involved in these ways. I mean, children who come to college campuses have a much better chance of aspiring to the possibility just being on a campus. It's something scary sometimes, or, you know, I mean, or at least, you know, this isn't for me, but when you can get to a campus and you begin to go there from time to time, programs like Upward Bound are critical. They really are, it seems to me. I would also say, though, we need to be working to prepare more teachers. I said something provocative this morning that on my campus, starting with me as being biased, um, I thought that necessarily when a student was superb in math, that person should, should definitely be thinking about teaching at the college level. I mean, I, I, and it, there were some students who had a particular starting with one young woman who was a brilliant young woman who earned an A in math analysis and was near perfect, the math, GRE, and, and she was saying, but I want to teach in the high school level. And I'm saying, no, no, you've got to be a college professor. Wait a minute. And, and she, she started asking me really hard questions. Do you think that uh, college students are more important than high school students? Do you think that it's necessarily more challenging when you think about all the issues involved in children coming from all kinds? It was fascinating. And so she helped change my mind as I've been working to change some of my colleagues' minds about that point. But what I'm saying, it's, it, we, are, we have to look in the mirror on our campuses to say, to what extent do we encourage some people to think about K-12 teaching? We need to be encouraging more people. And we're, we're, we're swimming against the current because unlike 40 years ago, when there was prestige in teaching in, in schools and when, when, when most women could only teach, quite frankly. With all that brain power, I mean, you had a very different situation. And so the challenge today is to bring that prestige back and for us to change our attitudes in the academy in addition to in society about the important work, the noble work involved in K-12 education. Very important. Rather than stepping, you know, being as we are to some extent. We are involved, and I mean, it's wonderful. Today's example is a great example of a college president and an institution saying, we want young people to come and hear what we're talking about, to see science on the campus and to see science in the arts, and this is great. I mean, because you could have you had all the kids at the football game, right? You know, and, and I'm sure you'll win today, but I mean, but even whether win or lose, the fact is, the, uh, you get my point. The, the values show what's important. 
having young people on a campus, having them involved in lectures and getting a chance to talk to people can make such a difference. I'm convinced of it. That's one piece of it. There's a larger piece, finally, let me say, that's much more complicated. The problem I see is that we in the general society and our elected representatives all feel we know what needs to be done in education. Now, we would never presume to tell a neuroscientist what to do. But because we've all gone to school, we all think we have the answer. And I'm suggesting that the problems of getting children to the point of being excited about reading and science are more complicated than we realize. And we have not brought the level of rigor to the analysis and approach that we bring to anti-cancer strategies. And that's what we need. That's the bigger answer. Let me, let me ask the students and everybody else to do this, this quote with me. It's, it's thoughts, words, actions, habits, character. Again, thoughts, words, actions, habits, character, destiny. It's the last one, right? Destiny, okay? Here we go. Watch your thoughts, they become your words. Watch your words, they become your Watch your actions, they become your Watch your habits, they become your Watch your character, it becomes your Thank you all very much.